We are back with season three of Arizona Opera Behind the Scenes, a podcast. In this series, host Cassie Hollerbach, the director of education, and Kathleen Trott, the shop manager for the Marlou Allen and Scott Stallard Costume Artisan Workshop, will introduce you to all of the departments and people at Arizona Opera that are necessary to produce the operas you enjoy. In this episode, we will meet Jefferson Reidenauer, the scenic designer for Ariadne of Noxus. are so excited for this particular episode of the Behind the Seats podcast because we are lucky enough to have caught the scenery designer for Ariadne Afnoxos while he's here with us. We're here with Jefferson. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. I'm excited and thrilled to be a part of this. Typically, we have some staff members of AZO behind the scenes, and I think this is our first this season of having a scenic designer specifically for our upcoming production of Ariadne. So just I want to start by thanking you for being here and carving out some time to do this with us. Of course. Yeah, this is great. Yeah, because he's not from here, so we flew him in for some actual set things and to look at paint and things, and we snagged him. Yeah, yeah, I got to check out stuff at the shop and see how things are going, and we're moving along, and uh, check with Elena on props and watch a rehearsal yesterday, and it's just seeing it all come together is really exciting. Great. We're getting there. We're getting close. Yeah. And when you yeah. hear this, it will be just right around the corner. Friday, yeah. premiering mm-hmm. on Friday. So yeah. to get us started... Why don't we just start, Jefferson, if you'll just share your name, uh, but your title and any productions you've worked on with AZO, or if this is your first one, um, and maybe share a little bit about other productions that you've done. Okay. So I can learn about you. Um, yeah, so my name's Jefferson Reidnauer. I'm the scenic designer um, for Ariadne of Noxos, and uh, this, is def- this is my first production here with Arizona Opera, and I'm like ecstatic to be here. Um, it's a company that I've known about. Um, from a very close friend and also a director I work with a lot, Finlan Lamb. Um, She's my creative partner Mm -hmm. uh, in crime. And uh, we've been friends for, oh goodness, probably eight, nine years now. And so uh, she actually called me this summer. Um, I was working on Coraline, the opera, which was the U.S. premiere at West Edge Opera in California. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was for our production company that we created called Paper Paper Moon Opera Productions. And uh, we, I was working on that show and it was a crazy, crazy process and uh, very fast. And uh, she was like, oh, my friend Chuck Hudson, who I I hadn't met before, um, the director for Ariadne, he asked if you would be interested in being the scenic designer for a show with Arizona opera. And I was like, um, yes, I would love to do that. (laughs) And it's like, finally I'm getting to that next level in my career. And it's what I've been hoping for. And now it's starting to come together and and happen. And it's very exciting to be here. So before we get into kind of the meat and potatoes of Ariadne, um, for those listeners who may not know can you tell us a little bit about what a scenery designer is like what are you what are you doing <laughs> yeah uh that's a big big, big question, question. <laughs> um, to dissect that as yeah you know. <laughs> many times the scenic designer is sort of the first on the front lines of a production uh with the director 
Um, so we're usually like one of the first designers that, that the director talks with about the concept or the ideas and where we're headed with the production. And um, I usually, I do, a, of course, a lot of research. Um, I'm sort of a big research nut. Uh, anybody who's worked with me knows that. Like I have Pinterest boards uh, for each production I do with like 300, 400 plus images. Yeah. And I get very like marinated in research. And so that's usually where I start as well. Of, of course, listening to the opera or play or musical or whatever it may be that I'm working on and uh, understanding the story and themes that are within that piece. And then bringing all that research and knowledge to a discussion with the director to figure out where is the visual language and the visual world of the show. Um, many times I think like a scenic designer, <laughs> it's kind of, kind of funny. Um, it reminds me of one of the things my mentors in grad school would say is that like a scenic designer has to be a jack of kind of all different trades. Mm -hmm. Um, in many ways you're like an architect, an interior designer, um, a a painter, a historian, dramaturg, you know, all of that in one. Um, because in, in many ways you're creating the world, um, that the show lives within and, you want that to be detailed and you want it to connect, especially when with opera, you want it to connect to music. And many times when I'm even sketching a show or thinking about a show, I'm also listening to the opera and um, allowing the music to inspire that design. If it be colors or texture or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great. So what is your favorite part of, designing sets since it's so multifaceted yes so probably my again the the research is Mm -hmm. definitely like my favorite part it's like really getting into the nitty-gritty of a period a world a culture an environment um in many ways it's like being a collector of images and a collector of like historical details um and so that's a big part of for me is just finding those details and finding that language and really living in that mm-hmm. kind of world, but to be able to put it up onto the stage and, and fullness, um, of course, with a team that makes it happen too. Cause sure. it's not, it's not just all of us, you know, by ourselves. Like, yeah, we're you're all, not hammering every nail. Right. Right. I mean, there've been times that I've had to, <laughs> uh, with, with some smaller companies, I've mm-hmm. definitely had to like be several positions in one, but, uh, usually it's a very collaborative team that makes it all happen. So when you design a set, what specifically does that mean translation wise to get to the scene shop? Like since you're not in there hammering every nail, how do they know what it is that you're imagining in your head? Sure. So the, the first thing is, is renderings are a big uh, tool and renderings are basically a visual picture of the set, um, usually very front on center of the house or the mm-hmm. theater that you're designing within or space, because it could be a non-theater sometimes. So uh, renderings are the, the visual representation of the set and that allow the director, everybody on the team, carpenters, uh, other designers on the team to understand what the set looks like and how it works and all of that. In addition to that, you also have uh, 
drafting for the show. So um, drafting for scenery is very much like architectural drafting, but not nearly as detailed as like technical uh, build drawings um, that the carpenters would use that the TD has drafted from my drafting. Mm -hmm. And many times like design drafting is more about conveying the um, texture uh, materials in some cases and how that interacts with pieces. And then the um, TD takes or technical director takes those draftings to, to then make them very technical so that literally he can send the, or she can send the drawings to the shop and be like, this is inch by inch. Mm-hmm. How, how much this board, yeah. you and know, then they can cross out, you know, this yeah. takes 75 two by fours and exactly. All exactly. That. So are you, are you, picking the materials as well or is are you suggesting them like how detailed do you get as a at student? times yes you can pick materials and sometimes i will suggest like what something should be made of if i'm concerned of like how it's going to look or how mm. it's going to work or how it's going to be lit that yeah. can also mm. be another concern um so many times i will suggest but then i'm also open to other suggestions by the, the technical director right. or other design members on the team to know like what would be best to do something Right. That makes sense. So what's the most challenging then of this entire sort of process and translation for you? Oh, man. That's, that's <laughs> a hard question. Uh, definitely for me, in some ways, it's, it's trusting myself. I think, I think all of us as artists at times have that imposter syndrome thing that yeah, comes sure. in mm-hmm. where you're like, am I good enough to this? Yeah. Do I really right. know what I'm talking Did about? I make the right choice. Yeah. Is this going to yeah. work the way I think it's going to work? And so that it's that first, like not sure where things are headed. That's a little scary for me. Yeah. And I find the most challenging is yeah. when I'm sort of in that very preliminary phase um, when I have an idea, but it's not a hundred percent grounded yet or solved. And I'm like, Oh, I don't know if this is going to work. This might work. This might not. And so again, it's kind of just trusting myself as yeah, an artist and trusting my gut That makes sense. and my intuition. Yeah. Sometimes in, in the shop, when I'm passing out directions, they'll go, why? And my answer mm-hmm. is, I don't know, but there's a reason. Yep. Right. Right. I will think of it, yeah. but I know that there's a reason why I want you to do it this way. And then like a day later, I'll have that light bulb moment of, oh, yes, that's why I was right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when you're designing too, so the other aspect of the design is that it's not being built in the hall. It has to get there. And the hope is that when we do it, then other people do it as well, and it's being transported. So in addition to actually designing what we see, is it also your job or is it like the technical director's job to think about the pieces and how it goes from hall to hall and all that sort of stuff? It It, it, it is a little bit of a crossover. It okay. can be at times. Like, there, for example... Um, with with this production, mm-hmm. uh, we Clayton and I discovered recently, probably in the last week or two, that there's a big difference in the sight lines from the larger space, the Herberger, mm-hmm. compared to the Temple. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're like, uh oh, we might need to adjust that false proscenium that we're creating for Ariadne. Um, we might need to adjust that and have an addition that gets added mm-hmm. into the center to make it wider for the bigger space. Oh, so. That, yes, did kind of like cross that point where I was like, okay, I need to think about this. What does that look like? And how does that work within relation to the curve of the 
the false proscenium. And, you know, then he was like, okay, this is how it'll, it'll break apart and come back together. So yes, it's a little bit of a crossover, Mm -hmm. but many times I would say, especially when it's a rental production like Mm -hmm. this, um, I'm not too, uh, a part of the conversation about how it breaks down exactly and goes into the truck and then gets onto the loading dock. But if it interferes with the design, the visual, then you're brought into then it. Then I'm brought into that, that conversation sense. to make sure that things are on, you know, track. That yeah. We already know that you've have not designed for us before. Yes. And you shared a little bit about how you ended up here um, through Fenlin, yes. um, who's wonderful. I think Fenlin directed Riders. Mm-hmm. Yes. yes. Yeah. And Yardbird. And Yardbird. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And several things. Yes. Like yes. Actually. Yeah. Um, but how else, can you tell us a little bit about your journey to this and kind of, I know it's been an interesting timeline of, I hate, I, Clayton was the one who was like, I don't want to say the word pandemic and we're going to try and say it as little right, as possible, right. but we were supposed to do Ariadne prior to the pandemic. Yeah. It was going to be our last show. Then it was the one that was canceled. Mm-hmm. And so we're kind of coming full circle with doing Ariadne. However, it's completely different. Yeah. We were supposed to do it in Simpson Hall. It was all rented. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Linda Ronstadt. And now we're doing it in Herberger and Temple. So will you tell us a little bit? That was a really broad, open-ended question. But <laughs> I'm apparently good at those. Uh, will you just tell us a little bit about that process, that journey? Were you supposed to design the original one? Kind of how? Yeah. about that? So I would get, no. I was not supposed okay. to run, design the original. <laughs> okay. Um, Chuck uh, reached out to Finland and then Finland reached out to me and then, you know, put us together to talk about this production. And this was, I want to say very end of July when we started having this chat, oh, this July, July of this, this year. This one is very fast yeah. Yeah. and not ideal timeline. <laughs> yes. I, I will a hundred percent agree right. with that. hundred percent agree with that. Uh, it was a very fast process on speed, mm-hmm. designing on speed. It's kind of what it was like. Mm-hmm. And uh, so usually I can have anywhere from, I would say four months minimum to six months, year, year and a half oh, wow. okay. for, a, for a new production. Uh, this was like literally three, four, five weeks. All right. Well, Let's learn about Jefferson a little bit. Okay. And then we'll probably dive back into Ariadne yeah. a little bit. But cool. how long have you been working in theater? Oh, goodness. So I would say I have been doing theater because in many ways I was a performer mm-hmm. before I was a designer, as I think a lot of us in some ways have, have done. Um, but I've been doing theater since I was in middle school, high school. Um, and I'm from a very small town in Denison, Texas, um, so north of Dallas, okay. um, you know, like, you know, three stop signs kind of town. Got it, yep. Uh, very country. I was raised on a horse and cattle ranch. Okay. Um, my Me parents, too. yeah. Yeah. My parents are <laughs> like very rodeo centric. Okay. Um, I didn't really get into the rodeo thing. My sister was a rodeo queen. Okay. Kath- my sister is a barrel racer. Kathleen uh, and mm-hmm. and my mom. Kathleen can rope a cow as long as it's not as moving. As long as it's sure. not moving. <laughs> like a du- like a dummy cow. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Sure. I've done that before too. New Kathleen knowledge I learned like a week ago uh-huh. for some reason. <laughs> and like some people don't know that about like because I now live in New York City and mm-hmm. so my friends 
in this business and and outside of like my family in Texas don't know that side of me. Yeah. Um, but you know, I used to shovel horse manure and uh, (laughs) haul hay in the summers with my dad and um, so I I mean I know how to work hard and those things taught me a lot of like responsibility and dedication all those things that you need to be a a good adult problem solving too (laughs) working on a farm or a ranch you really like get good at just sort of scrapping together a solution with literal bailing wire often yeah but you know yeah I cannot relate to any of this. I'm like, no. I mean, I, I grew up in New Jersey. I did grow up in the garden part of the garden state. So I did right, right. like have farms around me. Right. Not directly. Right. <laughs> and so I uh, have been involved in the performing arts. And now it's really funny because I even have had this conversation with my mom and dad recently. And they were like, you know, it now makes a lot of sense why you're why you do what you do. Um because I used to literally take like sheets and make curtains and I would get desk lamps and make stage lighting. And then I would like direct my brother and sister who are twins to do a show for my parents on like around Christmas or a holiday. And like I would direct, I would design what the set or what it would look like, Uh their costumes. I would help make something for them to wear. So they're like, it makes a lot of sense why you're doing what you're doing because I've been playing make believe, which is essentially what we do Uh on a bigger scale. Uh I've been playing make believe since I was a kid, and um, I I even (laughs) I even used to draw like uh, ground plans. Of dream homes, dream houses uh-huh. that I would love Gosh. to have one day yeah, yeah. on like notebook paper and just pen or, or pencil. Oh and like, so it, like looking back, it's like all those things come uh-huh. together and now it makes so much sense yeah. why I am where I am. Mm-hmm. Um, so I then went to, after high school, I went to um, Austin College, which is in Sherman, Texas, not Austin, not Austin. Texas, yep. which is very confusing for people. Yep. <laughs> um, it's the oldest private school in Texas. Oh, wow. um, it was actually founded by Stephen F. Austin, which is why it's called Austin oh, College. Oh, sure. Wow. That makes sense. Yeah. And it's a private liberal arts school, and I was totally immersed in just like more culture and diversity and different languages that I had never experienced before. Mm. Um, And it's this tiny little liberal bubble Mm. in North Texas um, surrounded by, you know, red and conservative. And so it's, it's very surprising how it's like still hanging on. And it's such a, like a sort of a historical landmark in a way to that area where I'm from. And at that school I was doing, um, uh, working in the technical theater uh, shop and that was my work study and because I knew that I wanted to still do theater I just it wasn't sure if it was going to be my profession and actually I was going to Austin College for pre-law originally okay um, mm-hmm. I wanted to practice constitutional law okay, okay. Um, so I was also a poli-sci major just like Joe um, <laughs> I've had this chat with him uh, a little bit we've chatted a little bit about politics uh-huh. and yesterday yeah and uh, so at Austin College, I was a double major in political science and theater, and I was working in the technical theater department shop. Um, and in the shop, I was learning how to like hang lights and change gels and learn how to do some carpentry work. And I had a wonderful technical director who was very much about like, I'm going to throw you in, 
and you're going to sink or swim and you're mm-hmm. going to figure it out. Mm-hmm. He was not about like, you know, talking about things and theoretical, sure. you know, he wanted you to practically do it. Sure. And he was like, that's how you're going to learn. And I was like, okay, this is exciting. I want to do this. I want to, I want to learn more about technical theater. Cause I had done some in high school. Like I'd done a little bit of painting because mm-hmm. I've been an artist, of course, my whole life. Um, since a young age, drawing and painting. But then, you know, he was like, he noticed something about me. He was like, you're really good with color, understanding like composition, balance, all these things that make a good designer. And he was like, I think you need to design a show. And he's like, we're going to give you a one act. And this was my uh, freshman year. Oh, wow. So most freshmen didn't get a show. That was kind of unheard of. Right. Um, and he's like, we're going to give you a one act. Nobody wants to design this show. Um, <laughs> you look like a good person right. to do this. Do you want to do this? I'm right. like, yeah, I'll do it. I'll try uh-huh. it out. Sure. And so I did uh, lights first, actually. Okay. And um, it turned out to be a really interesting show. And they, the mentors of the, the department were like, wow, who is this like person? Who, like, we didn't <laughs> know. Freshman, yeah. We didn't know that he could design, like, you know, do lights. And, and then eventually I did sets, too. Yeah. And so I took the design classes and sort of like learned the basics of set design. Yep. Um, very, not like, you know, super detailed, more rudimentary kind of basic drafting, basic elevations, renderings, all those things. And um, by the end of my undergrad program, I had like 10 realized designs in my portfolio, wow. which was just kind of crazy. And I went to Erda's mm-hmm. in uh, in New York City, and that's where I was like trying to I was trying to figure out like I want to go to grad school, but where do I want to go? Right. And so I bring my portfolio and I set it up, and I'm like, we'll see how this goes. Uh-huh. Somebody pick me. Maybe yep. somebody will pick me because yep. you know they sign up for yeah. slots uh-huh. and, you and you leave. Interview with them. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So I come back to look at my sheet, and I'm like, okay, if I if I get four or five, I'm, I'm doing happy. good. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm doing good. Yeah. I get back to my sheet and it's literally all day booked, That's like awesome. from yeah. 10 a.m. to yeah. 6 p.m. Yeah. I think I had 14 That's interviews that day. Yep. It <laughs> was nuts. Um, and that's where I met my uh, scenic design mentors um, from University of Missouri, Kansas City, mm. where oh. I went to grad school. And uh, I just knew like that was where I needed to be because they're very big on like painting and rendering. Um, again, this being practical, right. yeah. like making, being a maker, yeah. you know, not just a theoretical designer. Yes, I understand. And so I trained more in scenic art, which became like my new love. In fact, I love to paint. Um, that's probably the other side of being a designer that I love doing. And uh, from there, I, I essentially told them I really want to design an opera because I had also been learning music all through high school and and college and done a little bit of opera music, not a lot, but a little bit. And I was like, I really want to design an opera. I think this is like where I belong. Yeah. Um, And they were like, okay, we're going to make this happen. And finally my third year comes around, I'm about to graduate and I haven't designed an opera. Yeah. And I'm like, Hey, what about that opera that (laughs) you promised me? They're like, okay, we have one for you. It's with this guest director, Finland Lamb. Uh-huh. It's going to be great. You're going to love it. And I was like, okay. okay. And so I show up at my first meeting with Finland, and like we just 
instantly clicked. It was this like crazy, mm-hmm. I don't know, like su- weird, surreal moment where I've known this person forever. Yep. We're the same kind of person. Yeah. Like I even had some of the same images that she had. Yeah. And that was what was crazy. It was just like we're both in the same head yeah, space. Yeah. And cool. yeah. And then that like led to uh, after that first production I did with her, which was Sondrion. Uh, Massonese. That's my favorite one. It's beautiful, beautiful (laughs) music, beautiful piece. Um, It it was like, oh, this is it. You're my set designer. We're going to work together. And, you know, now it's history. We've done 35 plus productions Mm -hmm. in like eight years. Um, And then also created a production company, (laughs) Paper Moon Opera Productions. Oh, yes. So it's a whole nother side of it. Yep. I've heard um, our director of production, Craig. Yes, uh, had, it showed me. Yes, that. I didn't yeah. realize that you were involved in that too. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm the co-creator that's awesome. of Paper Moon with that's Finland. Incredible. Yeah, that's awesome. You should check that out for sure if you can. Yeah. Yeah. So then, what has been your favorite design project through this whole time? Wow. Okay. So uh, one of my first shows um, in New York City uh, for Off Broadway, um, I somehow got really lucky and got this show. Um, and in fact, I know how I got it, but it's such a, again, I, I, it's, there's lessons that we learn in this business and it's, you have to always be on. You yeah. never know when someone is watching you or looking at you or seeing your work and you never know what job is going to lead to come. another job yeah. and what will come, like you said. And I had been working at this summer stock theater in middle of Missouri, nowhere. So I was working at Arrow Rock Lyceum Theater in and um, in fact, I wasn't even the designer of the show. I was a scenic artist, the charge scenic artist for the summer. And the director of this one musical um, had just noticed my work and noticed my dedication and talent and all of that. And he was a friend of one of the producers for this off-Broadway show. And apparently he, I guess reached out to him and said, hey, do you know anybody in New York who's a good set designer? We're looking for someone. And he recommended my name. And then I got the job. And it was a a new Irish play. Um, It had already premiered in Dublin, but it was coming to New York for the Irish Festival. Mm. Uh, This was in, oh goodness, 20, I wanna say 2016, 2015 or 2016. And it, the play is called Party Face. And uh, the coolest part about it, though, was that the director um, was Amanda Burse. I don't know if you remember Married with Children, uh, that uh-huh. TV yeah. show. Yep. Uh, she was Marcy, the nosy neighbor. Oh, yeah. That's um, she's now a director. And so she was like one of the coolest directors I've ever worked with and like an, a name, too. And then our leading lady was uh, Haley Mills from like, Pollyanna mm-hmm. and tra- Parent Trap mm-hmm. from the old Disney movies. Mm-hmm. So she was our leading lady and she was a hoot, like so much fun to work with. So that was one of the coolest productions I've done. Um, and that was my first like taste of New York City uh, designing. If you didn't have th- this job as a scenic designer, what would you be doing? Sky's the limit. So I I kind of already know what it would be okay. because I'm already kind of doing it a little bit on the side, okay. uh, which basically kind of happened in the last year. Um, I'm started doing some interior design work in the city, and I uh, have I've already had one client uh, that are good friends of ours. I did their apartment in Astoria where I live, 
And I now have a new client through also friends that they just bought a house in New Jersey. Um, yeah. <laughs> and they, it's this Cape Cod home that they're like basically tearing down from the top to the bottom and then oh, rebuilding. Wow. And they're even adding another level with like balconies on each end with a connected attic. It's going to be really beautiful. And you're designing the whole house? The whole house. That's they incredible. They want me to design the whole house. It's going to be like a three-year project. That's awesome. Um, so that's already kind of, like I already see that that's probably where I would end up. Yeah. Um, because I kind of see a lot of similarities actually in set design and interior mm-hmm. design where um, with interior design, I'm telling the people that live in this home, I'm telling their story. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. just like you do with the set, you're telling the story of the piece or the work or the music. In this case, I'm telling the, the homeowners or yeah. you know, the people in this space, their story, that- which I find really cool and like really fun to like get to know these people and, oh. and, show their story through their design you want to design my house like, <laughs> all we ever say we look at the house and we're like we just need someone we need an interior I, design i'd love to <laughs> I, let's chat oh my gosh. <laughs> so bad so Arizona Opera's 22-23 season continues with Ariadne off Naxos at the Herberger Theater Center on December 2nd, 3rd, and 4th, and at the Temple of Music and Art in Tucson on December 10th and 11th. In the spring, please join us for Tosca, The Sound of Music, and The Magic Flute, performed at Symphony Hall in Phoenix and the Linda Ronstadt Music Hall in Tucson. Arizona Opera has a number of events and programs to supplement our main stage shows, including Coffee at Care, pre-show talks, and our Opera for Lunch recitals featuring the Marion Roose Poland Arizona Opera Studio. To find all of Arizona Opera's upcoming events, visit azopera.org slash upcoming events or azopera.org and click calendar. To never miss a moment, be sure to subscribe to our email list and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. So what part of Ariadne, to wrap back around, are you the most excited about? Wow. Okay. So I, um, with this season, sort of the programming of the season about the art of opera, um, Chuck and I had really, this is the other cool part about being on a team with Chuck and also Daniel too, um, the costume designer. Uh, We're all very academic heady big into research Mm -hmm. history i'm a huge history nerd um that was one of my favorite classes in school was history (laughs) and even in grad school too uh, with theater history um and so i the coolest part is getting to take a lot of that knowledge that i gained especially in grad school when it comes to understanding stagecraft of different periods um, different designers of the period that we're designing this production in, mm-hmm. which is like the 1910s, 1912. Um, that's the cool part about it for me is is taking that inspiration and that research and putting it into this production and sharing um, this visual language that maybe a lot of people don't know about. Um, you know, Leon Box, who was a uh, designer in the late 1800s into the early 1900s. He sort of changed uh, stagecraft in many ways and going away from less realism and going to a more lyrical, painterly, um, more symbolic and explorative kind of design. 
And I found an interesting sort of combination of his work with also another designer of the period, um, Edward Gordon Craig. And both were doing things that were kind of avant-garde at the time. And Chuck had talked to me about this idea that the opera, they're more on the cutting edge. You know, they're not, they're not the outdated, all-flat scenery, uh, you know, classical, melodramatic kind of, of look. And so we're, I was wanting to find this visual that combined this more cutting-edge style. Mm-hmm. And so that's the exciting part is just bringing those, that knowledge of the period into this production. Is there, and the answer may be no, that's okay. I'm just throwing this out there, not in our script. Is there anything that is in your scenic design, like something special or unique that like you may not notice, like if you're just watching it, but because we're listening to this podcast, it's like an inside scoop of something that maybe they could look for. Yeah, yeah, no, I love that. Mm. Uh, So there are nods. with the period that we're designing in, uh, Jugendstil, which is uh, Vienna Art Nouveau at this time, there there's a mixture of um, older mythology Greek motifs, mm-hmm. as well as this newer, curvier, asymmetrical uh, language that mm-hmm. many of us know when we think of Art Nouveau. Right. And so I found a way to kind of put hints of not only the Greek influence, which we eventually will get into the Greek opera, mm-hmm. the, the opera part of the, of the show. Mm-hmm. Um, so like you'll see in the false proscenium, there's like a mosaic detail in the center, which sort of is a nod to that Greek mosaic look. Cool. Um, there's also like a grape vine, um, grape sort of motif in a, a wallpaper border in the prologue set which is a nod also to Bacchus and where we get to at the opera. Um, another little special thing, which oh, I don't want to give that away. Actually, I'm going to save that because oh. there is a, there is a big sort of uh, with now. the opera. I'm glad I caught myself. Uh. On that. Uh, there's a big uh, moment in the opera when uh, Bacchus tells Ariadne, he's going to make her like the stars and uh, basically his goddess. Mm-hmm. And, I really, I always love to add a little special sprinkle at the end of a show. Uh, And there's a a wonderful thing that brings lighting set all of us together to create this really cool surprise for the, for the audience. Awesome. So look out for the the sprinkle, the surprise. Oh my gosh. I love that. So it really feels like you love research. You said you like to marinate in it. You yeah. like all these details. <laughs> marinate in it. So, in yeah, it, yes. Marinated in research. Um, so then what were you doing like in this pandemic break that Ooh. didn't let you do all of these research practical things? Yeah. Okay. So that was hard. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we all as artists found it hard. Like, where do we get our outlet? Like mm-hmm. we're always on in yeah. this business. Like mm-hmm. I don't, I cannot think of a time when I'm not thinking about work mm-hmm. or the next show mm-hmm. or the next three shows. Yep. Yep. Um, and so I, I did a little bit of internal work on myself. Um, I worked with a life coach mm-hmm. um, who I had made friends with actually through Finland. Really funny. Mm-hmm. Again, connection. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, I worked with her on like just understanding myself as an artist. Mm-hmm. What do I want? What do I want my career to be? Which actually in many ways inspired me to go t- 
find other outlets like mm-hmm. interior design. Mm-hmm. You know, she was like, well, what else can you do as an artist? Why, right. why do you just have to be a performing artist, performing art uh, designer? Right. And so she helped me kind of like find new paths and understand myself and also kind of rebrand myself as well, as well as an artist. And I'm working on redoing my website with what I learned from that process. But in addition to that, um, our really close friends who live above us, um, Andy Anderson, he's a, a maestro conductor of opera. Um, he came up with this wild idea. Uh, one night we're sitting around drinking a bunch of wine as a lot of us did. <laughs> and uh, on the rooftop, actually, yeah. oh, looking at, over at the city oh, uh, from Queens. <laughs> and uh, he was like, I wanna create a podcast that combines opera history and cocktails. We're like, that sounds cool. Let's do it. And we threw this podcast together very quickly because we literally had a whole team between our two apartments Uh to make this podcast. Um, And it's called The Mischievous Maestro. And it's, it's a wonderful podcast that combines opera history and specifics about opera performances from the past Mm -hmm. um, and little anecdotes. There's funny moments too. Mm -hmm. But then he also teaches you how to make a cocktail that connects to that opera or or the theme of that episode. Uh, So we did two seasons actually during the pandemic. So how can we listen? You can find it on uh, Google, uh, Amazon and Spotify and Apple as well. So all your platforms. (laughs) And then instagram as well right instagram yeah we have an instagram page the mischievous maestro um, where you can see some of our really cool images that we created for the for the episodes where i i created little miniature sets for each image for each episode so like for example when we did turandot i created a little turandot like you know asian arch moon arch and Uh you know just like crazy little things that we would just make little sets and then i would photograph them and my husband would help me with lighting and he also is a sound engineer too so he did all the editing and the sound work on the podcast it was just so much fun that's fun definitely check it out if you like this podcast you'll surely love yeah this one as well so all right all right so now we do our speed round just okay. making a thing. Here we go. I love this. Right? It's a little, little nerve wracking. I know. Little, little behind the scenes tip is that Kathleen and I, Kathleen is wonderful and writes us notes and stuff. And then she shares the notes with our guests, but omits this section. So it's yep. always a surprise every time, okay. which is why it's fun for us and not so much for the guest. But it will, it will be fun okay. for you. I'm excited. So if you were a color, what color would you be? Oh. Oh, definitely hot pink. Okay, Love that's it. fun. I mean, I'm a, f- I'm just like that in living color. Yeah, eighties hot. Pink. Yeah, so yeah. I'm just a very like, I mean, a lot of people say I always look very happy. I have, I have a big smile on my face most mm-hmm. of the time. Most of the time, <laughs> and and you know, like I just love boldness mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. being a little loud, and that hot pink is that, and it also makes me feel happy. Okay. Yeah, right. that's fun. Our next speed round question. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> if you had the power to remove any one food item from existence, what would you get rid of? I mean, that's hard because I actually love all, all food. There's, I mean, you can ask my husband. There's really not a food that I will not eat. I'm so jealous. He's, on the other hand, 
He is very picky. Like, <laughs> that's, that's very me. picky. That's me. Um, but he's getting better. I've been like introducing <laughs> vegetables, <laughs> like a little tomato in the pasta. Wow, he re- like he doesn't eat vegetables and stuff. That's me. That's not. me. He does not. <laughs> I eat. But he's getting better. I eat lettuce. I, if he, he's going to listen to this. So lettuce with dr- oh, facts. Yeah. <laughs> well, we, we can be friends. Um, I eat some lettuce and carrots if there's ranch involved. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's about it. But, Tomatoes in ketchup form only. Tomatoes are gross. But like thinking for my childhood. The, probably the one vegetable that I was not my absolute favorite was squash. Okay. So I'd probably say squash. Squash, squash yeah. This okay. was very like. I love squash, but he. <sighs> I think it also depends on how it's cooked. Yeah. Because sometimes it can just be like wet and mm-hmm. runny. Yeah. And. The ooh, only way that my husband will eat squash <laughs> is in pumpkin pie mm-hmm. form. Mm-hmm. That's it. Okay. He won't. Every time I buy one at the store, he's like, why is that in the house? My parents used to eat spaghetti squash a lot, Mm -hmm. which is very intriguing to me. I had to as a child. It was intriguing, but I also was like, why aren't we just eating spaghetti? Right, right, (laughs) right. Yeah, you sound exactly like my husband because that's what he would I say too. I have a feeling that we would buy, because I like when I say I'm like I eat like a twelve year old. That, that's him. Yes, chicken nuggets, yep. fries, that, your pizza. Name. That's me. Pasta. Yeah, yeah that, you literally named the four food. Those groups are the that main I food groups. On. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There you go. Well, I feel yeah. connected to your husband. Yeah. <laughs> right now, Ryan. His name is Ryan. Ryan. So Ryan. Now you and Ryan are friends. We need to meet him <laughs> and eat chicken nuggets together. Good friends. Yeah. <laughs> what has been your greatest food mistake? All right, so I, I, I'm, another thing you'll find out about me, a little thing about me, is that I'm a huge horror fan and like Halloween. Okay, oh, I love my, Halloween. you belong in the costume shop. Yeah. One of my yep. favorite holidays. I know you almost missed, more we than had Christmas. The costume shop goes they all, all completely out. decorated, but we took it down just like the day or two before you arrived. Okay, so my apartment is still, still Halloween. Halloween. Okay, um, and when I get back to later tomorrow. I'm going to start taking down Halloween and go straight to Christmas Uh because then I'll come here for Thanksgiving. And then it's like, Mm -hmm, I mm -hmm. will get to enjoy it if I wait too long. Um, But so we have a big Halloween party for our friends in Queens and our church friends as well. And uh, last it was, I guess it was last year, my uh, roommate and I decided we were going to do like themed foods for the party. And when I found this recipe on Pinterest. I thought, oh, this will be fun. This will be great. And it wasn't even that complicated, or shouldn't have been that complicated. <laughs> but it was called uh, Zombie Boogers. Okay. And it was like popcorn that had this like greenish sort of tint to it, and it, and it looked like snot. Kind uh-huh. of. Uh-huh. And I thought, oh, this could be fun and super easy. We put it together, we put it in the oven, and we think like, okay, this is gonna work. We pull it out like, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes later, like it says to do. It is this huge brick, like (laughs) hard as a brick pile of popcorn that smelled awful. Awful. The entire apartment was just like full of this awful burnt smell. Full of zombie booger smell. Zombie booger smell. (laughs) And of course, we're like opening the windows, lighting candles, because people are going to start showing up in an hour for the party. It was a disaster. And I was like, never again. We're not doing zombie boogers ever again. Oh we like literally just chunked it into the trash can. Like, just awful. That's, oh, that's so funny. I love it. It feels right, though, that it zombie boogers right. would smell like, terrible. Oh, yeah. Oh, what yeah. Was, 
what was the green like was it a flavor well, it was like food coloring okay. but then you, it also like you could add um it had butter of course yeah, yeah. garlic and okay. some, oh, so like, something yeah, else yeah, like yeah. So it's supposed to be stuff. like a savory popcorn yeah it's supposed thing. to be a savory popcorn that looks like that boogers and it's not but it was bad never again so we're gonna do we're changing it up Instead of what happens next, we're, we're doing do story, story time, time with, with Kathleen. Kathleen. Okay. <laughs> da, da. All right. So um, this is about a production of A Village Romeo and Juliet that took place in London in 1920. Okay. Um, and uh, there's this moment toward the end where uh, the lovers are in a boat and they're singing a duet to each other and, you know, Romeo and Juliet, tragic all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and toward the end of the duet, the boat is supposed to sink, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But the maestro cues stage management four pages too early, Uh-oh. and the boat sinks while they're still singing. Oh, no. They're doing that. And then the maestro and the stage manager get in a fight about it. And so then he's like, fine, the next time you can conduct it yourself. And the stage manager did. But then cued it four pages too late. Oh, no. So neither of them drowned. Oh, wow. <laughs> so then the stage management was like, fine. There's more drama in your version, I suppose. Singing <laughs> <laughs> and drowning. Yes. Oh wow, that's that's awesome. So you know, it. it's important scenery <laughs> endings. Yeah. <laughs> and we have our own sparkle to watch for at the end, right? Yeah, you that's do. true. You do. No, no drowning, no boat drowning sparkles boats. though. <laughs> We'll see. They won't sink into the stage while they sing. Hopefully, I mean, we don't know. Maybe. I mean, whoops. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> And with that, <laughs> we've changed it to a bad ending. Ariadne, right right. this is the tragedy. Oh, no. <laughs> She's pulled to the depths of the ocean. Oh, no. Oh, that would be awful. Would God, be. like a Don Giovanni. It would be a twist. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, with that, thank you so much for joining us and being here. Thank you. Everyone yeah. come see Ariadne and Jefferson's design. Yeah, and check out his podcast. Yep. Yes. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thank you. Join us on our next episode when we'll speak with Bradley Taylor, Arizona Opera's lighting supervisor. We'll be releasing a new behind-the-scenes podcast every month, so make sure you check our website, azopera.org, and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn, and join our email list so you never miss a moment. Arizona Opera Behind the Scenes is made possible in part thanks to the support of the Molly Blank Fund, Dr. Rex Brewster, Investing Kids Charitable Gift Fund, the Moreno Family Foundation, the Ted Stephen Teaching Artist Endowed Fund, the Arizona Republic, Cardinals Charities, the City of Peoria, and a consortium of individual donors. This program is also part of the Arizona Opera Next Gen Initiative that encompasses a wide variety of programs that go beyond the opera stage to develop the next generation of opera artists, audiences, and philanthropists. To learn more about the programs that are a part of the Arizona Opera Next Gen Initiative, please visit azopera.org and click Next Gen Initiative. These programs are made possible in part thanks to generous support from Roma Whitkoff, Jeanette J. Siegel, the Molly Blank Fund, APS, SRP, Jody Pelusi, Joy Tevis, and a consortium of individual donors. 
Special thanks goes out to the Marlu Allen and Scott Stallard Costume Artisan Workshop. This podcast is produced by its hosts, Cassie Hollerbach and Kathleen Trott, with editing and music composition by Sean Mallow.